You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 48 of Arsenal Pass. I'm Brennan Patrick, joined always by calling champion Hayden Dale. Hayden, how are you doing? Still good. Still good, Brendan. <laughs> Still doing good. Always doing good in these intros, weirdly enough. So in lieu of the calling Indianapolis coming up, Hayden and I are going to do the podcast version of our upcoming book called The Five Habits of Highly Effective Players. Wink, wink. Uh, so yeah, we're going to be going over metagaming, which we talked a little bit about last week, game plans, sideboard plans, mechanical play, as well as learning from losses and not tilting. But first, Hayden, you're weak in flesh and blood, sir. Not tilting. Brennan's going to talk to us a lot about not tilting. <laughs> I'm pretty good at it, to be fair. Uh, we could have Dante Delfico come uh, as a, as a guest. guest. Uh, this week, yeah, I mean, look, ProQuest season is wrapped up. I played my last ProQuest on Saturday. It was awesome. I really enjoyed this ProQuest season. I think we're going to talk a little bit about the ProQuest season and in review, sort of a, a recap of the ProQuest season and our thoughts, feelings, and what we want to see next before we get into the main topic of the show, which is going to be awesome. But yeah, no, like I I really enjoyed this. It was four weeks. Felt like I played a lot of events. I think I played six in total. So it was like a lot of events. Um, top added this last one. Bit of a funny story, actually, on, on the Saturday event. So I think I, I lost round one. Uh, I played Prism, lost a round one Mirror. And then went, uh, you know, one, one out to the last round. And then um, at round six, I, I see the standings before the round and I know I'm locked, but I'm trying to work out like where I am in the standings. And I really don't want to, there's one Briar that's locked for top eight and I really don't want to play against Briar as Prism. <laughs> like it's just the match, every other matchup I'm, I'm fine with. Like I played a Katsu in the last round. It was multiple Prism mirrors. Um, <clears throat> there was like some old, uh, sorry, some old Bravo star of the show. I really just wanted to avoid this uh, this briar. So I looked at the standings and it's like I'm sitting in, in seventh um, and one person on, you know, that has uh, is currently X2 and wins will get in. It will be eighth. I'm sitting there. I'm like, okay, I actually think I need to concede this last game potentially. So I'm, I'm doing a, a bit of gaming in the in the system here, to be honest, uh, which, you know, people might have their opinions on on that. But it's playing the match. I'm thinking about just maybe I just want higher seed, right? Like maybe I just want to be able to go first in the majority of prison mirrors, but I know there's one prison who's going to be above me get kind of halfway into the game against this Katsu, and then uh, I just I just end up conceding. Like, I think I, I have the best chance to avoid the bracket of Briar if I just concede and, and come in seventh. Uh, what ends up happening is I actually end up leapfrogging sixth somehow. So I didn't realize this, but sixth also lost round one, so had the same breakers as me, and I didn't realize that. And it went to third breakers to opponent match win percentage, uh, and that swung in the last round, and I actually end up in sixth and um, pair straight into the Briar player. So... <laughs> <laughs> Really, I tried to do all this, and all I did was play myself, Brendan, uh, and ended up playing into the Briar, getting pretty pretty handily crushed in the quarterfinals and um, the end of my progress season. But no, I had a lot of fun. Um, was happy to see the players from my local scene pick up their PTIs with you know their invite for Jersey, and a lot of players from Australia I know are going to be going um, because of it. So yeah, look, it's, it's going to be a massive event. How about yourself? For sure. You you played you well, played a couple I of events, right? Yeah, so I only played two ProQuests this season, but I played um, a doubleheader event this past weekend, uh, the Burton Memorial, which is actually was 20 minutes away from me in Hearst. Um, so that was cool. We had class construction on Saturday and Blitz on Sunday. I top eighted both. I lost in the semifinals uh, in the class construction portion. 
Um, I lost to a prison mirror, unfortunately. And then on, (laughs) on Sunday in the blitz, I went undefeated and then lost in the quarters. So Mm. bit of a bummer, but it was still, yeah, it was still fun. Um, and this week has been really busy for me outside of that. I've done a lot of streaming (laughs) on YouTube. So we just flicked on the stream and you know, a lot of people have been hanging out. We've been having a good time and basically just been streaming our testing games or my testing games. Um, in preparation for the calling in Indianapolis. So that's been really cool. As well as I did a fab trivia oh, game nice. night event. Yeah. So it was DM Armada, Dalen Mack, Red Zone Rogue, and myself. And we did like this whole like trivia game. I'm not sure when it's going up, but I no think spoilers it's though. Soon. No spoilers. Yeah. No spoilers. I think you, I think people will find it funny though. I think it was entertaining. Um, awesome. But yeah, busy week for me and a calling ahead of me this weekend. So a lot of fab. I'm so looking Bloody. forward to this calling. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be glued to the coverage. I've got it's like really late. I think it starts at one AM for me, but it's like, you know what? It's fine. I've I just I can't wait to I, I really enjoy what do you want to say about this format? I quite enjoy watching this format and I think it's gonna make some coverage, but I'm also really excited about commentary team. I'm excited for SCG to do their first event. Um we haven't had like a streamed fab event since the last lot of US callings, so it's we'll do it. Yeah, so am I. Um, excited to see Brian uh, as well. You know, obviously, you did the video with him recently, so go check that out if you haven't. Hayden did a video with Brian Gottlieb on the YouTube channel, and they talk about this upcoming event. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't Hayden's pick to win the tournament, which did break my heart, but, you know, it's been broken before, so it probably come back together fast enough. Anyway, Hayden, let's talk about the news. You're always my pick. You're always my pick. I just had to share the love around. Yeah, let's get into the news. Uh, and I want to start with, where do I want to start, Brendan? I want to start with our, our, our video series, our gameplay series. We did the Everfest Gauntlet series up on fabtcg.com. Um, thank you again to Legend Story Studios for providing us the opportunity to do that. We did three games, uh, six different heroes that have been very prevalent in this ProQuest season. Uh, you know, if you haven't gone and had a look, do so. Uh, quick spoiler, so if you don't want to hear this because you haven't seen the games yet, uh, just mute it for two seconds. I lose all of them. So uh, I've got some revenge to get against Brendan in the coming weeks, but um, <laughs> I had a lot of fun and uh, if you haven't gone and checked those out, we, we talk through them as we usually do, uh, but these are gauntlet-based you know, matchups, so we're taking taking decks that have done well in this ProQuest season, running them into each other and, and just talking about the matchup and um, game plans, etc. And yeah, it was, it was fun. Hope we get to do it again. Yeah, hopefully, maybe I can maintain my uh, my win percentage in the future. <laughs> uh, ProQuest Season 1, as I said at the, the top of the show, is wrapped up. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit about that later in the show, but congratulations to everyone who got the invites for New Jersey. Uh, the four weeks were pretty, yeah, it was pretty full on. We had over 300 events through this ProQuest season, and uh, it looks like New Jersey is shaping up. Pro Tour 1 is going to be a big one. So if you, uh, you know, you think about going, you're on the fence, go, honestly, even if you can play the calling and you have the opportunity to go, I think, I think you should. it's going to be massive. Even James White said, this is, you know, they want to make this a memorable event. There's going to be a lot of giveaways and things like that as well. So uh, yeah, just a big congrats to everyone that did manage to snag their invite to, to Jersey. Like you said, Brendan, calling Indianapolis is on this weekend uh, in preparation for the event. Like you said, uh, I flicked a message to Brian Gottlieb, who is going to be on the commentary team. He's one of the casters for the event this weekend. He's very well known in, in Magic and uh, has been basically dedicating a lot of time to flesh and blood over the last few months we had him on time in the round late last year i think it was maybe around october november uh just after he was you know sort of getting into the game um and i was super impressed in this preview video that me and brian recorded just how much he knew about the format and how on top of the game he is so i think we're going to have some 
it's a great commentary team. We've got Tan and Grace in the booth as well with Craig Crimples, and it's going to be a very, you know, um, experienced commentary team, but also a team that know a lot about Flesh and Blood at this point. So I'm excited to to see how the event uh, gets cast and and SUG doing their first event, as I said. So if you are um, if you're not going, I mean, if you are going, good best of luck and, and enjoy. And if you aren't going, then I recommend jumping on and checking out the, the commentary. I believe it's going to be streamed on Star City Games Twitch. Uh, I think it's the SUG Tour, is what their Twitch is called. Um, and that starts Saturday morning. Uh, it's in what time zone is Indianapolis? And in? is that Eastern time zone? Hmm. You're, the, uh, you're, the, you're the American uh, here. You should know. I feel like you already know my answer, which is I have no idea. In I, like I just Indiana is just not. Yeah, Indiana has been a little bit of a blank spot in my uh, my state knowledge, to be honest. Um, I know the Pacers play there. Um, so yeah, it's, it's Saturday morning, so around kind of mid morning uh, in. Indianapolis time zone. I know for me that's 1 a.m. So yeah, be sure to check it out. Some new stuff is coming our way, Brendan. Uh, new product mm-hmm. releases, uh, partnerships. Russian Blood are really ramping up and LSS are ramping up what they're doing. So we've got a new product announced coming May 27th, which is this Classic Battles Blitz uh, Dual Decks, effectively, if you've played other games. It's a box containing two 40-card Blitz decks that you can you know play with friends, introduce people to the game. I think this is going to be a really great intro product. Um, it comes with like a you know like a paper play mat, so it's really good for people getting into the game. It features two, well, we know definitely one new hero, young hero in the form of uh, a new Dorinthia. But it's a, it's a Reiner versus Dorinthia uh, battle battle box, so potentially also a new Reiner. We 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 don't know that confirmed yet, but there is definitely a new specialization card for Dorinthia as well. So not only are we getting you know a new product that introduces two of the original heroes from Welcome to Wraith to you know uh, win out of out of print. Welcome to Wraith is now, right? Is out of print. So we have this opportunity mm-hmm. to have these these battle decks, um, classic battles, but also two two new young heroes that can be used in Blitz and uh, a new specialization card at the minimum for Dorinthia. I'm sure we're going to see that for Reinar as well. You left out the most important part, which is like that mini lore book, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, so it comes with this this lore book of, of Wraith, right? Which is like a mini, I guess it's a mini version of the, the lore books we've seen through the retailer appreciation kits, right? Yeah, I don't know the exact details, but I think that this is definitely one of those things where it's like, finally, they heard us. <laughs> I feel like we've been saying for years that they should, you know, redo, you know, continue the lore book series, develop that. It was a great mm-hmm. product and so cool. um, we'd all love to see more of it. Yeah. So here we here we go. Everyone s- sitting in shock that uh, Brendan doesn't know the details as well. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> uh, also, Legend Story Studios are partnering with Dragon Shield. Uh, and have custom, you know, flesh and blood sleeves coming out. I believe they're coming out twenty uh, second of April to stores. These are hero art sleeves. So the first four coming: uh, Lexi, um, Ultim, Chain, and Prism. So two monarch heroes, two Talzvari heroes, and it's literally the the hero art printed on matte finished sleeves on the back of these sleeves, which look really cool. I was hoping we might see some like some art sleeves, so not just the hero. Like maybe I want some. Yeah. I want Sand Sketch Plan on a on a sleeve. That's what I really want. Um, but no, really mm-hmm. cool to see that. I think that's just the first of what this partnership with Dragon Shield is going to be, uh, and it's it's super exciting. You know, I I think it's another just another point about where Fab is going and shows the legitimacy that Fab has in the wider TCG community. I agree with you. I was actually also hoping for uh, for art, you know, something like that, iconic art. Um, I was really actually hoping for the you know the map, right? The kind of like oh, that would be outs. awesome. Yeah, 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 that yeah. would be sick. That, I, and the way they teased it, I honestly thought that that was going to be there. Um, probably in the future, you know, with the heroes, it's very 
recognizable, iconic, and approachable for people new to the game. So probably just an introductory product there. But you know, partnership with Dragon Shield, that's uh, that's a big huge, deal. Huge. Yep. Yep. So very exciting. I'm definitely gonna be picking up. What what do you, I think I think I'm gonna have to pick up. I like the chains. Do you know what? I'm not a massive fan of the the hero art like idea of the sleeves, but I think it's cool that we start here. I'm probably gonna pick up old time and chain, I guess. You know, maybe we use those on stream. Yeah, for sure. I'll uh, I'll stick to my Chandra torches. Or wait, wait, no, I have my uh, what are they? Cement, Samut sleeves. You yeah, know those yeah, MTG Samut, sleeves yeah. I have. People love those. I keep getting comments. People are like, bring those back. Where are they? Yeah, I definitely have never heard that. But okay. Um, moving on. Skirmish season four starts next weekend. So not this weekend. We got a break. We got Indianapolis, which is super exciting. But then Blitz is next weekend. Another you know fast paced season. Um, what's really cool, I think, is that we're going to get the skirmish season and then, you know, we're less than a month away from the pro tour. And I don't know if you saw Brennan, but, uh, there's a grayed out article currently on fabtcg.com, which yep. says details for pro tour number two, which is going to be coming in. Wee, 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 sir. You think we're going to um, France? Uh, you just... I might have insider info. I don't know. No, I just, uh, I'm excited to go to Europe. France would be awesome. Um, they did a calling, you know, they're doing a calling in Poland. So looks like they've hit, you know, Eastern a bit. So maybe we'll be somewhere in Western Europe this time. So I would love to go to France or anywhere in that area. But Pro Tour Tour, it's exciting. You know, this competitive roadmap that they talked about prior to 2022, it's happening. It's being executed on and like the kind of real, the realization of what professional flesh and blood is uh, supposed to be is you know, kind of coming to fruition so i'm extremely excited yeah. it's awesome to see so i mean prediction where are we going prediction where are we going um i honestly think we're going to france or italy i think we might do rome okay all right all right i, I mean no love for the uk big, big uk community yeah could go to the uk too but i just you know, I gotta, I gotta pick something. <laughs> I gotta guess somewhere. Where are you guessing? Uh, I'm not guessing. What? <laughs> I'll just wait for the announcement. We'll see. Okay. But no, no, uh, very cool. Very excited. Uh, and I'm excited to see what comes next for, so we, we have up to kind of Pro Tour 1, we know what's happening, but we have no clue what's happening for the rest of the season. We know there's a skirmish. What else? When, when does ProQuest Season 2 start? Like, is that going to start before mm. the Pro Tour even starts, you know? Uh, that, that might make sense based on timing. What about Worlds? What about skirmish season two? Uh, what about limited events? You know, we, when we get the next set, what does limited look like? I, I'm missing limited, honestly. I'm missing limited play right now. Um, we've had Tales of Aria for a while now. We don't have any limited events. Like, it would be great to see. So, yeah, skirmish season four anyway, May, March 26th to April 17th. It's all Blitz events. You can find events near you on the fabtcg.com event finder and uh, get in and, and play and win yourself some, some foils. Uh, comprehensive rules 2.0 it's officially out so it is live now uh, we did talk about some of the details and the key changes in an earlier podcast when it was announced and now it is live and it is active um, you can go and see there's a there's a, a release on this and tells you some of the big changes but there's a lot of quality of life changes um, around basically like how kind of just clearing up how phases and wording and stuff like that works uh, there's some changes to like cost announcements and how cost works so some cards do get a little bit of a nerf, things like Find Center and Frostlock. So it's worth checking those out. One of the, the funniest things, and, and um, someone sent this to me, uh, you know, a friend from from local, uh, David, uh, sent this to me. And I, I laughed. I didn't know about this. But until the comprehensive rules change, 
Did you know that you could stack cards in your arsenal as uh, as Azalea? So <laughs> I didn't know it back then, but I did know it before the 2.0 released. Sure. Um, also activating um, energy potion before it's, you know, it's resolved. There's, there's one thing that happened in the, this rule change that is definitely a quality of life chain, but, uh, change, but unfortunately has the ramification of ruining probably one of my favorite parts of the prism uh, mirror, which is the interaction with Merciful Retribution and blowing up Spectral Shields and sort of blowing your opponent out and denying their go again, ending their, ending their oh, combat really? chain. Just, changes? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's totally gone now. So if, you're, if your Spectral Shield blows up, you don't lose go again. So that whole entire thing, this whole sort of like, uh, uh, you know, you were kind of baiting your opponent, you were gambling, do I swing, get the last damage in, do I clear, do I not? That's all gone. Um, so yeah, you actually maintain that go again, even if it's blown up. Oh, really? Why, why is that? And I, I am 100% sure on this one. Okay. Like I did, we did, I did talk about it in the judge discourse, not one of those ones I just kind of read wrong. Um, as well as, I mean, the most important change though is the stack, right? We've, we are now calling what was, I forget what it was called, it comes the chain, right? We're calling it the stack. It's much clearer. It's better to, it's way easier to understand, and especially for you know, anybody else coming over from other card games, it's going to be a lot more intuitive. So I'm happy that's happening. I also think that that stack zone exists outside the game now or outside the play. I don't know the technical term could be messing it up, but that right there is the biggest quality of life change by far. Yeah, I mean, I need to go and brush up on CR 2.0. Um, you know, if I was going to Indianapolis this weekend, it's something I would definitely be having high priorities, making sure that you're across all those. I didn't know that about the go again. That is news to me, and I'll have to go and understand how that works before I get into some yeah. testing for the Pro Tour. I suggest that if anybody, I suggest that if you want to get caught up on this stuff, you just read like JJ's articles, JJ Scott, yeah. um, the, I forget, back out, does he call him back alley break line or something of, or something of the Oracle? Um, whatever you can search his name on fab tcg but if you just read those articles you'll be caught up very well it's very con but just straight up reading the comprehensive rules 2.0 the, yeah, the vernacular is pretty tough i was i was struggling hayden but uh jj's articles helped me a lot and then if you go onto the discord and go to the judge channel you'll find a lot of stuff that you might need for indianapolis but yeah um anyway <laughs> yeah back alley oracle back alley Oracle. oh it's both of them makes back sense <laughs> Uh, anything else? I just saw as well. Uh, Armory kit for April is is announced. It's Illusionist. It's an awesome looking shimmers um, or silver mat. They actually, I saw it because it was one given to I think some of the judges at the last event I was at. It looked phenomenal. Uh, there's also cold foil blue uh, auras. So I believe in the kit. There's like four of each of the like the random auras. So haze bending, passing mirage, and piercing pierce reality. So. Um, or sorry, or the, the kit contains four of each. So uh, I think I'm gonna have to go and play a bunch of armories in uh, in April. I didn't play any this month. I didn't I didn't pick up a a, a, a genus watuned, uh, but you know some blue auras and the chance of a shimmers mat. I think I might have to. Yeah, Prism oh. continues to be the most expensive deck, most expensive <laughs> deck to like kind of pimp out. It's ridiculous how much they have. They have the cold foil, they have like you know cold foil auras. They have judge promos. Then they have um, of course the erudition full eyes. And now we have this. Just a ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous to to make that deck, yeah. uh, you know, reach its final it form. Max it out, max it out. Yeah, there's yeah. two lots of judge. There's the judgments, and then there's the the war tunes. Anyway, uh, yeah, there's a big news section this week. Uh, Brennan, I have a question for you. You will be in Indianapolis, right? Right? Uh, and people come and say hello to you. No blonde hair, so it's going to be a bit harder uh, to spot you, though. 
That's what I was going to say. I'm actually going to be incognito. I will be in my camouflage form. will not have white hair, so good luck finding me. But if you do happen to uh, spot Waldo, a.k.a. me, come up and say hi. Um, yeah, I'm excited. Always love meeting people at these tournaments. And yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a good time. Closing out the news here, I do want to say thank you to all the Arsenal Pass patrons. We have over 500 patrons now. It's been an incredible year of growth. We're closing in on episode 52. Going to keep saying that until we hit it. But uh, yeah, big thank you to everybody who has subscribed on the Patreon. If you're interested, there is extra content there, including extra podcasts, deck decks, deck guides, as well as, um, you know, some sort of fun, exclusive content Hayden and I do sometimes. Maybe we commentate some, some big games like the National Championships in Hong Kong. Uh, you know, we have fun with it. Anyway, Hayden, take me to that command to cookouts. It was a bit of a long news section, so I'm not, the creative juices aren't flowing too much, but we can keep it a bit tame today. We can just head straight in, get on the queue. Well, I was just going to say, if you're looking for Brendan and he is in his, on, you know, his camouflage mode, uh, just look down, see if you can find him. Yeah. Look for the shortest guy in the room. That's going to be me. Uh, it's never going to get out. Um, this command and cookout question comes from Sloth from the, uh, the Patreon, the patron discord. Um, thank you for the question, Sloth. Sloth says a question that might be too big for Commander Cookout. Well, clearly not because we're tackling it right now. But how do you go about testing to really start deep diving matchups? Uh, talk through lines, things like that, etc. So <laughs> I wanted to pick this question out because I think it really ties into what we're going to talk about with kind of uh, the, the main topic of the pod, which is really talking about some of these, you know, Brennan's best-selling book, uh, these, these habits that uh, we think that a lot of the, we're seeing from a lot of the, you know, I guess, quote unquote, top players, right? Or players who are going to be, you know, favorites heading into an event like Indy. Um, and playtesting is really interesting. So how do you go about testing to really start deep diving matchups? It's a, it's a broad question, but I think there's a couple of things that are really key to this. Um, and it's the first one for me is like, just focus on it. Have it as an idea, right? Like if you if you have an idea about a matchup, let's take start of the show, right? Like it's clearly the deck that people, is, everyone, is on everyone's mind, won the most amount of ProQuest, if I want to work out how I'm going to play into Star of the Show, well, the best way to start testing and deep diving on a matchup, like say, let's use uh, Star of the Show and Prism, like just as an example, maybe from the start of the season. Well, the best way is to just is to actually start playing matchups into it, and um, you have to. I think you need a really clear idea of what you're trying to do. So, what's your theory? Like, what am I? Where am I starting from? Start from a first of all, get the get the decks out, uh, have a theory of how you're going to play into it, and then play that and see how it goes. And I think you can start to iterate and evolve from there. You need a starting point, though. Yeah, I think it's really important to have a control variable. Um, like, in t if you're just kind of jamming games with friends, it's pretty easy for, you know, both sides to be kind of switching up the deck. You're playing old hit, you know, you're playing Prism in the old hit and trying to test the matchup, but now your old hit opponent, you know, on day two of this kind of focusing on this matchup is now, you know, I've got this new tech, I'm trying these two hammers or whatever it is, but like, is that the deck is constantly evolving while you're just taking, you know, card in, card in and out here and there, trying to evaluate the effectiveness of this like singular card or this two of or whatever it is, or you maybe switch it on the ratios a bit. That definitely detracts, I, I find, from, you know, actually coming to your answer, right? So it's really important to have a control, right? Have like a core gauntlet deck that you're trying to beat, a deck mm -hmm. that you're, it's, it's, it's expected to see in, you're expected to see in the meta. And don't have the you know the pilot of that opponent deck try to innovate on it too much or constantly change it throughout the process. There's one thing about this uh, this question that's really interesting. And Hayden and I have actually introduced a new system um, for doing this, right? For for deep diving on matchups. So we are a little bit in an asynchronous texting schedule. Hayden tests in the morning, I test in the evening. But nevertheless, even if we weren't, um, 
we wouldn't have we did, I can't when Hayden's playing the game, he can tell me how his game went. He can write notes. He can talk about a specific line if I point it out. But I don't get to really see it from his perspective. So we've actually started instituting VOD review, right? So I will record my game in something like Tabletop Simulator, full information. And then Hayden will go back. He will watch it back on his own time and then write me notes for the entire thing. And we do this for each other's VODs. And that's where you, you know, as the spectator, I get to kind of get into his mind and see every single one of his lines, right? Because eventually when you're doing the matchup, it becomes less about the core theory, although that's very important for the foundation. And then it becomes about these sort of micro decisions that you're making on a turn-to-turn basis and also how the player is evaluating themselves and what as like what role they're playing at what point in the game. Because like with Prism, this is something that Hayden and I kind of do differently a lot. And that's what's the most interesting. I'll evaluate myself as the beatdown at some point in the game, but Hayden will evaluate, you know, as the opposite side of that. And we'll want you be like, oh, I may have developed board a, a bit more here or so and so. And I honestly feel like this is where I've I've learned the most because I'm getting into the mind of another high-level player who's challenging my sort of fundamental and natural way of playing the game. Um, and yeah, it's been incredible. Yeah, I, I think that is something that's that's helped a lot. That's um, I think for me that's that's like the next phase of of the testing. And I, one of the things you said at the start, and I didn't want to interrupt because I thought it was a great point, is the this idea of not changing too much. Like you need to have an idea of what you're testing into. And if you're both kind of just like throwing stuff against the wall, you're not really there's no like you said there's no, a control is like a great a great word for it. There's no control to your variables. You're just you're not actually going to learn a lot because. The most effective way I've found, and uh, I did this a lot for testing for nationals, is we would sit down and say, okay, here is what we expect an Alton deck to look like. Here is what we expect a Prism deck to look like. Here is what we expect a, a Briar deck to look like. We're going to run those lists in the in the way that we think that people are going to play game plans into us on Viserai, and we're going to try a few different things. Uh, we're going to play three games, and we're going to try the strategy. Then we're going to play three games, and we're going to try these cards out. Uh, we're going to play three games and actually we just played those games and the lines didn't feel right. So we're going to try this. And then after we figure that out, then we might move on and say, okay, the next step is, well, what if actually Ultim played to uh, basically fatigue us? What if the Briar played to set up bigger turns as opposed to being really aggressive every turn? Once we've got a baseline for things, then we might try different things from the control side into it. But we won't try that until we've actually understood what we're trying to do. I think you need to, when you're doing testing, I think you have to have an idea of which is the deck that you're innovating and testing with, like the matchup, who is the one that's like, this is where the focus is. I think always one side is going to be more, have more focus on it. And the other side should be the control version. Because if you have both versions trying to innovate and like really work on that deck and try and find things and no one's really playing more of a, a stock or this kind of a given approach, it's really hard to get good information from it because you could play a game where it's like, okay, I just played Briar in that matchup to help my friend test, but I just played in a really weird way to try a few things out. And your friend also played in a different way to try things out. And then you both go to the event next week and, oh, wow, my opponent is not playing in the way that I expected. And my testing was kind of not really relevant. Like I've got all these cards to tech for this matchup, but that's not actually how the matchup plays out in, in, um, in reality. So I think it's important that you have uh, this idea, like Brennan, I think control was like the right word, have a control deck and then have the the deck the, the side of the matchup that you're testing yeah i just want to expand on that and clarify the word control in this use case so we're control when we say control we mean a variable, a variable that stays yeah. The, yeah that stays the same and does not change throughout the process right so it's like the foundation that you're testing against um but yeah i know it can be kind of confusing because Sorry, yeah, the control deck yeah true. control <laughs> architects yeah, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. yeah 
if it's an experiment, this is the this is the one that does not change. This is your constant. Mm. Deck, so exact yeah. constant. Yeah, there you go. The stock standard, the 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 gauntlet deck. You need one side to be the gauntlet deck, otherwise, and and be played in a gauntlet fashion. Uh, and you yeah, can played in a gauntlet fashion. Yeah, it's you important. can innovate and change those game plans up, but get a baseline first of all. You need a baseline to go from because. If your opponent starts playing, if the if the assumption is like, oh, this matchup's bad, I'm just going to play in a different way anyway. You, first of all, you need to actually learn that that's true, and I think you need somewhere to start. And maybe you've already done the testing, and, and you both agree that that's true, but it, it could well not be right, especially if you are trying to change things into a stock sort of strategy. How do you know if the strategy on the opponent side's already changed? How's that actually going to help you? Yeah, and then my I think my last point here is like, <laughs> what usually leads to these things being hard to execute because it sounds like probably it kind of sounds like a very good idea and then easy, uh, yeah an easy thing to do but it's then easy, people try to easy does hard right yeah people try to uh, you, you don't want to what is testing right testing is not trying to win the game and trying to you know pander to your ego so i think if you're playing on the gauntlet deck if you're playing on the control deck you need to realize that that is your role and um you know if when both players are trying their hardest to win every game rather than gain knowledge and information i think that leads to ineffective testing mm. you wouldn't know much about that would you no, I just win everything. Go look at the LSS videos. <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you for the question, Sloth. Uh, I hope we did some justice to it. It is a very deep topic, like you said. Maybe it's too big for the Command Cookout. I'm sure we could probably do almost an episode on that. And we have talked about testing and effective testing in, in uh, the pod before. And, but it's something that we love to come back to because I think our learnings continue to develop as well. And like Brennan said, like the idea with the VOD reviews, like that is a new thing that, um, that, that Brennan's really implemented to try and, you know, I guess move on in terms of get some insight and some um some more effective testing so something we'll always come back to if you do want to get your question for the commander cook and then you can do so i mean basically any way you want to you can email us at arsenalpassfab at gmail.com you can drop them in the youtube comments below and let us know that it's a commander cookout question you can tweet at us uh you can drop it on our community discord if you are a patron uh, whatever way you want send a postcard why not yeah, yelled at me from across the convention center in Indianapolis. Awesome, a little Whatever note. you want. All right, Hayden. Just like, let's quickly close it out, you know, this, this ProQuest season. What were your final thoughts? Um, you know, how did the whole entire experience go? Just wrap it up. Give me like a brief, you know, Hayden's brief uh, final thoughts review, per se. Mm -hmm. X out of five stars. So I want to talk about two things, I guess, like from a personal perspective and then from just trying to be a bit more objective about how proquest was done as two things for me so from a personal standpoint yeah I, I loved proquest i had a lot of fun playing these events uh i planned to play like four or five i ended up playing six i ended up traveling to an extra two because of it one and a half one was already kind of maybe on the books but traveling to two because of just how much i enjoyed playing it uh the community aspect of it was like fantastic like meeting a lot of players actually met players i hadn't before and, and have been actively being actively engaging with these players as well um i uh, got to you know play a few different decks i personally played three different decks across the season won't you know talk about one of them is fine whatever <laughs> uh i think for me it was like six pro quests uh, i managed to top eight five and and um go to the finals in three but a couple of finals as well um and win win one outright and then the kind of you know the, the one i didn't top eight i played livia which i had fun still you know some fun i just one two dropped it was all right um the the idea of what a pro quest is i think is really cool we haven't had this before and it reminds me a lot of the old pro uh, the ptq system for magic which is really cool to see and the old system that i really enjoyed not so much the the newer system um in terms of i guess like the longevity of this i think this 
this works. I think this ProQuest works. I think there's a few things that LSS need to look at in terms of potentially um, just like quality of life changes and improvements for heading into ProQuest Season 2. Um, I think they need to work a little bit closer with some stores in terms of like capacities and uh, access to these events, which I know you've talked a lot about, Brendan. Do you know what? I didn't hear as much about this as... It was improved. Had, it was improved. It was the only thing... It was like one of, it was going to be like the only thing I was going to say is that... Um, that that kind of situation um, is improving in the United States, which is nice. Yeah, and, and in, in Europe, from what I understand as well, there's still some restrictions in places. And uh, here in Australia, I think everyone who wanted to play and said ProQuest got to play. Like One of the cool things I saw was that stores that are really invested in what LSS are doing because of the relationship they have with um, LSS are doing things like hiring external events. Uh, but they're working with, you know, they're, they're having conversations about it. And I think... That side of what Alexis is doing is great, and they're doing that with certain stores. Uh, maybe they don't have the capacity to do that for a wider network, um, and it's you know, realistically that's really tough to do. But some sort of support system in there, I think, would be great for you know giving some you know some education, some information to these stores about how, what is a ProQuest, how big could this be? Because some stores they might not know. You know, they they are running the game, they're selling the product, and they're running Armory events, and they get this opportunity to run a ProQuest. But what does that actually look like? Like, what could it be? Um, so I hope there's maybe a little bit, a little bit more support for retailers moving forward. But I thought it was done pretty well. Um, I expect to see ProQuest expand somewhat, although a lot of invites given out, right? Like, how much can you actually expand ProQuest moving forward? Like, how big can Pro Tours be? Um, is a real question on my mind, and that leads me mm -hmm. to pricing. Like, how do you continue to have these gold foils hold value? And it's, I guess, it's not up to Alice's to old you know to understand the secondary market but it kind of is because this is what they're not giving cash incentives for people to get to these pro tours you know they're not giving away flights or anything and there's a lot of these events so they need to keep an eye on it and i think that's going to be really challenging i don't have solutions i don't i don't know what they should do but i think it's something that they need to understand i was surprised that we ended up having just 12 i think it was 12 12 foils in the end but i think that's smart it allows you to do another lot next time right so um yeah it's something i'm keeping an eye on is like how do you continue to grow ProQuest? And my thought is it doesn't necessarily mean more events, but maybe more players and events and events that are more uh, dispersed so that players have opportunities to play. It actually, um, the concept you're talking about expands past ProQuest as well. Um, because like you said, Average they're not compensating players. Yeah, they're not, com well, on the kind of professionally, they're not compensating players the way the sort of, you know, the Magic Pro or two are used to, which made the, that lifestyle a bit more sustainable. And it is done a lot through these promotional cards, through these cards that you'll win, not through actual cast incentives. Um, so there's a bit of Ponzi-nomics there, right? Uh, we have these sort of new promotional cards that come out they have x value you know there's y supply put back and this sort of maintains this price but lss has this like weird connection to like not managing and also managing it because that is how people are playing the game professionally is winning those cards and selling them for a lot of these players so it's interesting to see how that will scale right because as more players enter the game as we have more events will this still be a viable way to support you know your hobby of traveling and going to these big events um so like i said i think that's a that's a big topic to unpack my, I have one critique of ProQuest. Um, what, well, 1.5. Point 0.5 will be a sub point where you talked about, you know, some stores don't have the same quality as others on ProQuest. Um, you know, I was, I did get to experience that. It wasn't a bad experience, but I did go to a ProQuest that didn't have, like, they didn't have bathrooms, working bathrooms. So that, like, that wasn't very pleasant, right? Okay. 
Yeah. So, you know, there's like different levels. And I think that we're going to establish a better, a better sense of continuity moving forward as we establish ourselves a bit more and we understand like what a ProQuest is. My only critique though, moving from ProQuest is that it is very clear that they could have expanded the invite pool past first place and not done this XP system as a way to get invited to the Pro Tour, which is a terrible system. And this is coming from a person that is getting a invite to the Pro Tour based off XP that I've acquired far in the past. My 90-day XP is like 30. But because of my lifetime XP, I'm getting an invite. So although it benefits me, I do think it's a bad system. I do not think it will be repeated, but this time we could have easily just expanded the invite pool, maybe first and second, maybe top four, whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I would have liked to have seen that implemented, but other than that, it was a fantastic season. It was awesome. And yeah, I'm just very excited for the future of this game. Yeah, I want to riff off a couple of things before we move on quickly. Um, I've come around on the XP system a little bit. I think it's this first Pro Tour. Yeah, okay, it's fine. My, my only concern was that they didn't use ELO as well. Um, why not reward both as you transition to an ELO system in the future? Fine. Uh, I think multiple invites, like we see Battle Hardens now at um, at Fallings invite two PTIs for the finalists. Uh, I could see ProQuest doing the same for that feeder event and the events not growing. So if the events don't grow, uh, you know, potentially, but you have bigger events, you know, this, this, the, I guess the requirement for stores is to be able to have capacity and to run these events. Have working bathrooms would be nice. That sounds uh, abysmal. Um, you know, things like these, I think that's where we could go. So yeah, yeah. and the, the only thing I want to say about Gold Force is, is it's smart. It's really smart, the Gold Force system. But at some point, you know, is that long-term viability there and, and what does that look like? And yeah, how do you support players who are trying to get to events? And it was a con- it was a thing in Magic as well. You know, players mm-hmm. from, you know, countries like, South, you know, or areas in countries in South America or uh, countries in like Oceania and stuff like this where travel was really expensive to Europe and to the U.S., like, how do you support those players? You're just never going to have representation for those players otherwise. Um, so, yeah, I think that's something that they have to understand. And look, they're a small company doing big, um, and there's, they're growing, though. I mean, look at these partnerships with Dragon Shield, et cetera. Like, there's, there's, there's more to come from LSS, and I think what they're doing right now makes sense, but I think it's something for the long term um, that they'll have to look at. But, yeah, overall, I thought phenomenal season. I thought it was done so well. Four weeks of just, just you know, games, just... Tons of events, right? Yeah. Everybody was gaming. There was so like I know so many people that played every weekend. Like there there was so much buy-in and participation by the player base that I thought it was a massive success. It was like four weeks of like people's I just people were invested and I had people saying to me, you know, like, just didn't get any work done this week, you know, like data comes out on Wednesday, like got testing in this, like I'm working on stuff. We've got two pro quests this weekend. Like, you know, I'm just trying to squeeze in time to do this or whatever it is. Like, it's such a, it's such a, it's enthralling, right? Like, it's such a cool thing. And yeah, ProQuest Season 2. Um, it reminded me of like Blitz Season 1, right? Where everyone's like, all right, like, which yep. skirmish Season 1, sorry. Like, which skirmish do you go into? Like, which events have we got? Like, are you on this one? Oh, cool, cool. Or like, we should jump in a Discord room and do, you know what I mean? Like, it, it was really similar. So um, yeah, excited to see ProQuest Season 2. But anyway, I've talked about it enough, Brennan. Why don't we, uh, why don't we move on, put the ProQuest behind us? So onto the main topic of the pod. Five Habits of Highly Effective Players. You can find it on Amazon and the nearest bookstore near you. Coming out soon. So, let's, Hayden, let's just go ahead and jump into it. We talked, to, we talked about sort of the broad scope of all five of these topics in the intro. So, let's just jump into game plans, right? I know this is something, a word that we've maybe overused a bit, but not nearly as much as the second cycle of the deck. So, <laughs> it's let's talk about it. what a game plan means. And, Hayden, tell me what, you know, 
one of these sort of top players, whatever you want to call it, what are people doing in regards to game plans to get an edge, right? Over sort of what a normal player would do or what the average the average person in the field is doing. Yeah. 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 You, and you, you did talk about this in the, at the top of the show. I do just want to give like maybe a little bit more context to why we wanted to do this in terms of why now. Um, we're, these are topics, to be honest, that we've talked about previously, but not everyone's listened to our pods and some things have changed. And I think we have different thoughts and the meta is in a different spot. We've learned a lot of things. So we wanted to at least like top level recap some of these things about like if we look at someone and uh, I, I'm not going to name names, but if we just look at maybe someone who is, you know, perceived to do well this weekend is going in as maybe like a favorite or they end up top hating, they will have a lot of these things right now uh, because these are the things that are making uh, good players good. You know, I think some of these, there's other things, there's other factors that we, you know, that are in there as well. But a lot of these, I think if we were to pinpoint across, say, you know, a spectrum of some of the best players right now, you'd pretty clearly say that these these things are, are things that they are doing, right? These are the, the habits, quote unquote. And if we're going to rip off a book title, uh, we, actually, sorry, we definitely haven't ripped off a book title. What are we talking about? This is definitely our thing. A book title ripped off our idea. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So game plans. Um, I mean, game plans is like, at a base is just like knowing how to win a game, right? It is. How to win the game. That's yeah. it. Like we can, we got to, we just translate that Stop word that. into a phrase, right? And that, defines it's like you have to approach every match or like you know every matchup every match is like how am i actually going to win this game not how am i going to play this game then ultimately you know my life my opponent's life total just kind of ends up on zero no like from the very beginning you have this sort of macro strategy on how your deck is going to play into this other deck and how you are actually going to win the game what are you going to play towards right whether that's you know i'm looking to arsenal my um, Steel Blade Supremacy and play a five card hand off of it. Okay, I know my opponent, you know, plays this, uh, you know, red plunder runs occasionally. And on those turns, I am going to have to block and I, or I want to save my armor for this potentially, you know, when they do come in with the Blood Rush Bellow turn. Things like this, you need to understand how your deck plays into other decks and how that changes based on, you know, what hero is sitting across from you. Whoever wins Indianapolis this weekend, they're going to have game plans into their matchups. Like it's just, it's just guaranteed. I just don't think you can uh, you can do well and perform well without an idea of how you're gonna like you say win the game, right? I think it's a very good thing to say mm-hmm. um, into into any given matchup. And most decks, uh, like you will get, you actually get kind of punished for not having game plans because your opponent will have a game plan, uh, or you know, like your your good opponents. And um, I think this is like a really easy starting base point in terms of like this kind of habit of of game plans. Is like just get into it. When you pick up a new deck to take to an armory, or maybe it's like ProQuest season, maybe we're heading to ProQuest season two in the future, and there's a there's a hero you really want to play or a deck you really want to play, um, the first one of the first places I would start before you even head along to that you know event and, and you're testing is like what is my game plan? Is um, you know Sloth asked that question about where do you start with effective testing and matchups, game plans like early, yeah. mid, the, late. I think the last thing you want to do is be you know sitting down at the table at this big event and you sit across from here and you're like, oh, the one thing that I haven't tested against, right? Or I'm not so sure about this matchup. And then you just kind of have to learn on the job. It's a terrible feeling. And, you know, you can avoid doing that with proper testing and preparation, but also just talking to people, right? You can get this information from other players that have, you know, played those games, done the work for you, and they can give you good information on how to sort of, you know, blitz or speed run 
the masterclass on how to beat that. And that way, when you sit down across from your opponent, you're not learning, you know, on the fly and just kind of try to figure it out as you go and figure out, you know, maybe when you made the mistake on turn zero, when you attacked into Starva and let him filter his hand for no reason, and then he, he activates his ability and comes back and you're like, oh, that probably wasn't the best idea, right? Or something like that. So it's both, you know, like I said, end of the day, how am I going to win the game? And specific to this hero that's sitting across from me. And then to an extent, how do I lose the game? Like that's also important, right? Like so specifically in something like the Prism Mirror, you know, how do I win the game? Okay, well, I want to, you know, have presents, I want to have heralds, those things. How do I lose the game? Well, if I get behind on board and I let them land a bunch of auras on me, I can pretty much get just like prisoned out of the game. I can get locked, right? And then I just have to get very lucky on heralds if I won if I want to win it all. So while I'm playing through that game, I'm being very conscientious of my opponent's hair, my opponent's auras on the board, you know, being able to come in with something at the end of my chain to clear it, maybe land my own and staying on parity with them because I know it's important. I know it's very snowball-y and, it's, you know, if I let it get out of hand or maybe just kind of forget about it and get excited about a triple hailed hand or something like that in the early game that, you know, I can lose just off that decision alone. Yeah, the... The macro plans are really important when we talk about game plans. Like that's you started in macro. Like this is how I'm going to win the game. So I'm gonna play the early, so I'm gonna play the mid, so I'm gonna play the end of the game. And ideally, like knowing your opponent's game plan as well is like huge value. But then there's the micro, which is like the things you just talked about. Of this like on any given turn, this is like the play pattern I wanna follow. Like I wanna if I'm playing Viscera into Prism, like I wanna be like residuing at the end of a chain to kill aura. Like that's my kind of micro game plan on a turn to turn uh, that I'm looking to play into and, and what does that look like mechanically? But the, the first thing you want to start with is like the bigger idea, like how am I actually going to, like you say, win the game? Here's a couple of questions for you, Brendan. Mm. You just talked about matchups. If you're going to an event, you're going to Indianapolis this weekend, do you have a game plan for every single hero that you could play into? So all of the heroes in Classic Constructed. So I have robust game plans for what should be 90% of my matchups, right? And then past that, I have theory, right? I understand how those decks work and I understand what my deck wants to do in those games in order to win the game. I don't know every small interaction, every potential, you know, blowout or whatever it could be, but that's just the nature of the beast and me not having infinite amounts of time and resources. So I would say you fo I focus on the big ones and I get really granular on what my game plans are going to be and how I'm going to win those matchups with, with consistency. And then for the rest, focus on theory. I talk to other players. Um, and yeah, I just approach it from that perspective. I may not have had the, you know, the literal reps myself, but you know, with a good enough deck that you know, potentially is aggressive or linear, if I just have enough theory and know what to avoid, my deck can kind of do its job. Right. Hmm. But you have a, you, you have a macro plan into every matchup regardless, but yeah. some, you know, the, the key ones that were your micro plans are really coming in. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. I think it's an important thing to know. I mean, you can't, I, I will always have macro plans when I build a deck, to be honest. Like, there's never any time where I don't have a macro plan, because otherwise, why have I built the deck, to be honest? But it could be I just have macro plans into, like, maybe I'm building a deck right now, and I have a macro plan into Prism and Bravo, and then I'm testing, and I'm building micro plans. And then, you know what, I'll have macro plans for the other things, the other heroes, at some point, definitely before I go into it in a big event. Um, but that, that can come later. It's, a, it's like a process, I think, with game plans. But yeah, you, you will see, no doubt, I have no doubt in my mind that Whoever, probably even top eights in Indianapolis, whoever wins Indianapolis this weekend, they're not just going in and being like, yeah, I just kind of played my deck and uh, just like played the cards out. No, they've got game plans. They know how they want to play the early, the mid, the end of their game, and they know how they want to play into their opponent with those game plans. What up? What's up next, Brennan? What's the, what's the second boys. habit? 
Uh, next, we got sideboards. And I know everybody's got sideboards, but there's more to sideboards than just writing out some cards and you're figuring in, figuring out like what kind of comes in, comes out. Sideboards are interesting, right? Because you have a limited number of slots, theoretically, that you can, you can add in. I don't know what your core deck looks like, so maybe you have more than others. But you do actually have like a, lit a, a limited number that you can, you know, a limited number of cards you can bring and potentially, you know, use as tools, tech cards, or transformational sideboards to play better into your worst matchups or, you know, maybe win your mirrors, whatever it is, right? So I think to a large extent, like your sideboard should be geared towards the meta right it's geared towards what you expect because a lot of times you know there's going to be cards that are incredible against kano if you're on prism but you're probably not going to need them right so i'm not going to have 10 percent or you know even 30 percent of my available sideboard cards geared towards this niche deck right i might just kind of have to roll the dice because i know that the likelihood of me playing something like a starvo a prism or a viscerai is so much higher that the cards that are going to be that are going to make up my sideboard are going to be more tech to that, right? More cards that are tooled for those matchups I know I'm going to run into more, and maybe more cards that are going to help me win my bad matchups, right? If I feel confident in the mirror, I feel like the mirror is technical, right? And I can play it very well. I have a lot of reps, but my Katsu matchup is just really rough, and there's not much I can do about it. Maybe I bring in some extra tech to kind of shore me up and help me when I get into, the, when I get into those matchups um, eventually. Kind of funny, I kind of disagree a little bit, but it's more from like a theory perspective of like, I don't think cards are for matchups in Flesh and Blood. I think cards are for game plans. And I think cyborg plans and having cyborg plans, if that's kind of your second habit, it really goes hand in hand with your game plans as, as like your first habit. And that's because you can have game plans and what helps you enact those game plans and changing those game plans is having sideboards, having cyborg plans and, and understanding how to cyborg efficiently. And I think that if I talk about it, like, I, I think we're kind of on the same page, but I think we look at it a little bit differently. Like if you talked about, okay, Katsu is a concerning matchup for me. What's my game plan into Katsu? And then what does my cyborg look like to enact that game plan? I, I like to work backwards a little bit and go, okay, rather than just like, oh, I want these cards. I want like, I want X. Like, I'm just like, ah, oh, more heralds is good against Katsu. First of all, can my plan into Katsu be like more heralds, more herald based as a prism with my prism shell into Katsu? If the answer is yes, and I want that, cool. Then I've moved from my game plan being a more herald based game plan, an aggressive game plan. Now my sideboard where I'm working on my sideboard plans, and then I'm looking for spots to find the amount of heralds that I feel I need to enact that game plan. So I think it's really important. I think this is something that you're going to see a lot of good players do um, is that they, they won't just jam cards into their sideboard. They'll have a really clear idea of how that works into their game plans. And when they change their sideboard cards, uh, they're doing so because it impacts their game plan. They're not just saying, uh, actually, I have like these three or four slots which aren't really doing stuff in, in certain matchups, although that's a good identification. Then they just mm -hmm. go, I'm going to play these cards because they're good. I'm going to chuck these chains of eminence and I'm going to chuck these defense reactions because maybe I could just use more defense reactions. Well, hold up. How does that actually play into your game plans? Do you need more defense reactions or are they just going to be more dead cards? And when you stick them in your deck, are they just going to take away from your game plan? Um, and I know we've talked a lot about Prism, but I know how I felt about like the Fafer scenes I played in week one. I had Fafer scenes in my list. Um, I played differently to the person who gave me the list and gave me the game plan. I felt that my game plan was different. So I had these excess cards in my sideboard that I just didn't want anymore. Uh, they didn't fit in the matchup. I wasn't. I didn't want to put them in because they didn't fit my game plan. And then that's working backwards on that sideboarding. I think it's just super important. I think game plan and, and sideboarding plans go hand in hand. And uh, side, basically game plans is how you're going to play and sideboard plans is like how you enact it. How do you make it happen? For sure. And I think that I can kind of go off of that, especially the Prism example, where you're right, the Fate for Saints are fundamentally changing what your role is in that matchup and how you actually be interacting with Katsu, right? You're just adding in 
more kind of oh crap cards, right? More answers to you know you already kind of gamer you beat down. But I look at it like a tech for Katsu is me adding Command and Conquer to my deck. I would not play Command and Conquer in the mirror, even as a popper. I think it's terrible. It's terrible against Starvo, but it's so effective against decks like Chain and Katsu, which want to preserve five card hands and go wide on me. That if I'm already, you know, I understand that matchup is like if I can apply Herald pressure, that's a good that's a good spot to be. What's and that makes me the aggressor in the matchup. And Command and Conquer, as the aggressor in the matchup, is a fantastic card, right? You have this Herald into potentially an Aura, and then you land a nasty Command and Conquer at the end of that chain after they have it blocked. can really help in that matchup. My question to... I have one question that I think helps elucidate my point about sideboards being a bit meta-dependent um, the most, which is how much Null Rune are you playing in your deck? much Null Rune? Yeah, yeah. But what I would argue is that that comes from your game plan, because... I could say, oh, there's going to be a lot of Kano this weekend. I'm going to three, throw three Null Rune in, uh, into, or four Null Rune into my Viscerai deck. Now I can't play Boots or Scalata. So that completely changes my game plan for my Viscerai deck. So I still think you need to really understand, even though there's cards that are maybe more like spot, like cards you can spot for different matchups, you still really need to understand how they're going to flow into your game plans and what, what they're going to do. I don't think you can just chuck cards in for the, for the like the Command and Conquers, right? That's a great example of a, a, a card that, um, in previous formats has just done so much. In this format, I think, does a bit less. is less, less potent than it has been, um, but does a really specific role, right? But your game plan is adapting to that. Like you just said, like I'm trying to have a Command and Conquer on the end of my chain now to disrupt. I want to disrupt in that matchup. That's part of my game plan. I want to have these on-hit effects with like Water and Heralds and stuff. So like, this, is, this is still part of your game planning, um, even if it's a bit more sort of spot in and out with cards as opposed to just like big wholesale macro changes. For sure. And I, I, I understand your point of view, but I, I do think there are many decks and many players that would play better into a deck, a niche deck like Kana with Null Rune 4 and even execute their game plan better, but have decided to actually play Null Rune Tech 2 in their entire deck because they can fit more cards in those slots to actually, you know, tech for decks that they actually they expect to oh. see, right? We see people cut on Null Rune. Um, where if Kana was obviously the most popular deck and obviously the best deck, you wouldn't see them doing it. So that's somewhat a bit of the meta dependency in my mind. Mm -hmm. So Hayden, you talked about this, right? Reducing, you want to reduce redundancies and guards that just aren't used in your sideboard. And that, it sounds like a stupid thing, right? You're like, that doesn't make any sense. Write out your sideboard, right? And maybe with like a newer deck, I guarantee you're going to have a card in there somewhere, maybe the third of a card or even a whole set of cards. It only comes in for one matchup that doesn't even matter that much it's actually even very likely that you have a card that doesn't come in for like any of your matchups and shouldn't even be in there. So write it out, get rid of those redundancies. And I think, you know, usually if you're evaluating your sideboard, actually getting into, you know, looking at it in detail, you'll find something like that's important to, uh, important to look for those things for an event, event like this. And lastly, I want to talk about understanding, and this is going to be a good one for Hayden, understanding what costs you incur by <laughs> adding cards into your deck from your sideboard. It's not like, like Hayden said, I'm not just adding in tech cards, right? I'm not like, oh, well, Command and Conquer is just good against Katsu. And I'm like, hardcore prism. I only want to be landing auras, and that's how I win the game. This is not how it actually works out. But like, let's say that's the theory. That's terrible, right? I don't want to bring in this asymmetric card that it doesn't even work with my game plan at all. So these cards that you put into your deck, they affect what your deck can do and how you're going to execute that game plan. And this comes in the form of ratios, right? When you add in these red cards, take out blue cards, take out yellow cards, your ratios change. The math changes and your likelihood of, you know, maybe being able to cast that forecast or is much different now. Um, obviously with Starvo as well, you have your fuse targets, things like this. Uh, so I think you need to understand 
based on what cards I'm bringing in, how have my ratios changed? Does that change my game plan? Do I need to adjust the way that I'm playing? And lastly, I think that sometimes based on the cards that come in, you know, that you side in for a certain matchup, it actually changes the way you fundamentally play that matchup, which again, not to overuse the word, but it goes back to game plans. For example, if you're playing something like Dash, right? There's some, there's some, um, there's some matchups where you're just going to be boosting whenever you can, right? You boost in, you want to be aggressive, things like that. Then you go into another matchup where you sided in some uh, command and conquer, some defense reactions, all this kind of stuff. And now, maybe until maybe in the early and mid game, it's actually quite uh, it's quite risky for you to do that. And you shouldn't be doing that. Um, so I think it's you know it's important to analyze the costs uh, that you're incurring when you're adding these cards into your deck because it's it's uh, always non-zero. I, I have a great analogy. Well, I think it's a great analogy. I think you shower the other day, Brendan. And uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say something else, and you said you're taking a shower. <laughs> Taking a shower the other day. I mean, I, t- I take a shower daily, sometimes twice daily, depending on you know when I go to the gym. Uh, just in case anyone was concerned about that. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm getting my body wash on the hand, getting ready to lather it up. I put the bottle down, and I see on the back of the bottle. <laughs> I see on the back of the bottle. Um, you know, it's a it's an all natural body wash, and it says, uh, "With our body wash, we think it's just as important what we don't put in as what we put in." And I just thought such a great analogy for flesh and blood when you're sideboarding what you what you put in is just as important as what you take out of the deck and it, it is it is very true like you fundamentally change the way that you that your deck is going to operate run function play hands play cycle to cycle based on not only what you put in but also what you take out so uh you know if you're ever thinking about sideboarding and game plans also just think about you know how important it is that's What's not in I your body you, wash? Hayden, don't worry. I got you, Hayden. If you're ever thinking about sideboard, think about Hayden in the shower, just lathering. Right? That was how that was that was your point there. Anyway, let's go to the next one, which is mechanical play. All right. And now on to <laughs> the section that is the epitome of easier said than done, which is mechanical play. Um, you know, what does this mean, Hayden? And how do we actually execute, you know, having tighter play, having better mechanical play? And how do I utilize this to gain an edge over over the rest of the field? It's one of my favorite probably topics because it's something that I know is has been a weakness in my game and continues to be something that I try and work on. But mechanical play effectively is is the the micro decisions you make in the game. It's the it's remembering to tick up your tunic counter. It is the sequencing you do on your turns to to get the most damage out of it, to break the chain the least amount so that your opponent's foot phantasmal footsteps get the least amount of value. Like Mechanical plays are the small micro decisions and things that you do in a game uh, to get the most value. And it is it is about taking your time, I guess. It's about understanding. It's about reps and practice. And it's about paying attention and being like cognizant of what's happening. Like a lot of mechanical play and, and poor mechanical play I see is is just like lapses in concentration. Um, I, like I've literally lost events from mechanical play. <laughs> I lost yeah. a winning into it. Like everybody has. Right? Yeah. I mean, I'm. Everybody has to have has to have done this at some point. Where you just make the the dumbest. I watched Zach. Okay, I'm gonna call him out, right? Oh, I was watching this as well. I had to walk away. Yeah. I know what you're about to say. I watched Zach Bunn in the finals of a ProQuest. This is the new uh, the finals of a battle Harden, right? Think for I think what was 20 minutes on his 20 minutes, 20 minutes. He had game in hand, easiest game of his life, game. And then he goes to execute this this thing. First relevant trigger misses it, right? And it's an embodiment of lightning. I was like, so that is, that's paying attention, right? And if you, of course, if you go down these rabbit holes, 
be a bit tough, but it's something that I know both Hayden and I have struggled with. Sometimes, like, you just make this decision, you're like, what the, how, in what universe did I end up making that play, right? I, I yeah. knew what I was supposed to do, and I just, I just, I just lost like the foundation of my entire thought pattern. So I think taking your time, not playing too fast and, you know, really paying attention. And sometimes, honestly, for me, that means reading the freaking card, because even though I played a card a million times, I could have played it a million, a million times the wrong way. And this is, geez, that happens to me more than it should, but everybody knows that. <laughs> so I guess, first of all, like, why does it, yeah, like, why does it happen? Well, one of the big ones, I think, is that us as players and playing a game like Flesh and Blood, we're trying to play ahead of the decision that we're about to make. So, okay, mm-hmm. I'm about, and, and that's what good players, like, honestly, some mechanical players and, and failures in mechanical play, I, I see it happen from really good players. And I think the reason from that is that they're thinking ahead. So I'm about to make a decision on my turn, and um, I'm thinking ahead to what that means for the card I'm going to arsenal, what that means for what I'm going to do with that card the next turn, what that means for if my opponent comes in with X, Y, Z and what they do on their turn. How might they defend this? How might they not defend it? What if they don't defend it? How am I going to play differently? And then all of a sudden, I'm thinking about all those plays, and I just forgot to activate my Snapdragon Scalers on my attack to give it go again to even start making those plays, right? Because you're so far down the road that the, 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 your mind is gone from the current play that is right in front of you. And I think that is, that is literally where so much of the mechanical play issues come in. There's, there's other things. There's like forgetting to tick up tuna counters and stuff. And the the my advice right for and i guess for like developing this habit and i'm it's one again i am still myself really trying to get into this and get even better because uh in an event there's always uh you know if i go through an event without mechanical like play mistakes i'm 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 flying high like it happens very rarely because it's something that for me i'm still trying to work on um first of all i think go through your turn so if it's if you're forgetting tuna counters phases think about the phases in the game that's something that you need to start thinking about Okay, start of my turn phase. What happens at my start of my turn? I've got trigger on tunic, I've got a trigger on Genesis, or I've got a trigger on this blessing of deliverance, whatever it is. Okay, my start of turn triggers. Now I'm into my turn. What is the first thing that I want to do in my phase? Okay, it's it's a I've already planned out what I wanted to do because I did that during my opponent's defense phase. Uh, let's just quickly reevaluate that. Do my lines of play still work with the mechanics that I know are here? So uh, I'm gonna oh actually hold up. I have a frostbite token. This changes like my mechanical play. I can't actually immediately remove the counter from my tunic because i need to pay for frostbite so just these mechanical plays and these things you're going to do uh, okay i know that in the middle of the chain here i'm going to break snapdragon scalers so i might be thinking ahead and then okay reactions do i have any reactions you know like taking a step back taking your time yes i do have a reaction i've, I've got the snapdragon scales i've already pre-planned it's not about you're taking your time not to think about lines and plays you're taking your time just to go okay right i already had a plan here let's make sure we enact this plan that's literally like that's my Probably my biggest advice is think about the phases, think about what's happening through the game. Like Brendan says, take some time, but take the time to reflect on the the decisions you're making. It's not it's not necessarily you shouldn't be taking time to rehash everything over again. If you made a decision during your opponent's turn to not defend because there's a line of play you want to go for, that's the line of play you're going for, right? Now your focus is on mechanical, um, you know, enacting that in, in the best way possible through your mechanical play. Mm-hmm. So the way that I do this. Um is that I will think about my line, um, no matter how complex, and occasionally it can get complex, I'm thinking for a while, and then as soon as I finish, I think that I found it, I go, okay, go back to the very beginning, and go, just do step one, that's it, do step one, that's it, because it is, when you get on those really deep uh, kind of decision trees, that's always what you lose, basic 
simple, just fundamental piece to that, that, you know, the, the simplest, the simplest ingredient, right. Is what gets lost. The activation of your Snapdragon to even have Gogan to do it. Right. It's, um, you know, it's, it's so many different things. So I will think about my line and I'll go back and I'll execute everything is in like a fraction of its most micro thing. Right. Okay. I just play this initial card and then I, you know, go through the steps. I also struggle with it, but, um, yeah, uh, at the end of the day, it, it's some of those tools, right. It's some mental stuff, but a lot of it's practice, practice, practice. You got to get the games in muscle memory. Um, and yeah, that'll help you a lot. People ask for like, Oh, what are like some tips? What are some things I can do to like, remember these and people are like oh you know like put a dice somewhere for your tuner and all these things but honestly the best way is to get into habit so that you don't need these things and the best way to, to, to so they just become second nature and the best way to do that is to go through them as a process and then the process becomes natural that you don't have to think about the process after a while rather than like these little tips and tricks to do this like i put something on my deck or i put this next to my tunic or whatever or like uh when i'm gonna use my snapdragon scales like i'm gonna turn it sideways and have it close to my hand or whatever like the best way to do things is to have a process and to to practice with them and that's something that personally i've been trying to work on is come back to this process and now it's becoming a lot I've played tcgs for a long time so there's always been a process for me but i mean that every now and again i just have to go back to and especially in high pressure situations just try and default back to my process or when i'm feeling like a little bit fatigued or um, when the game is in a really tight position you know what i'm just gonna take an extra five seconds here and just check my process here check my mechanical play uh, before I make this play, I'm about to pitch my card. Let's just double check this works. Yep, two resources and three resources. I'm only breaking the chain once. Make the plays, and then I'm making the plays, and we're just going through. That's the plays. Yep, hundred percent. All right, Hayden, on to the next session, which is uh, nicknamed the Dante Delfico session. <laughs> Learning from losses and not tilting. Um, so you just have to understand, right? We're talking. Obviously, losing doesn't feel good. <laughs> But if you're approaching your, if you're approaching this as, you know, someone who wants to be the best player you can be, losses, no matter how bad they feel, no matter how high, st- ridiculous they might be, they're they're all just steps to your future success. They're all just a part of that equation that ultimately will make you a champion, right? So you need to find a way to be able to embrace that, not get tilted, not get emotional, and you know, learn from your mistakes, which I know we've all throughout our life, but in card games. I, it feels weird for me to preach this, like to preach this on this podcast, but I have seen some fantastic flesh and blood players and card players in general that that is the biggest thing they struggle with, right? Mm-hmm. They will lose one game and then they will just never rebound. And honestly, that's, I think that is probably one of the worst qualities that you can have as a player, right? I can, you can get, you can learn mechanical play. You can learn game plans. You can learn sideboarding. But it's really hard to teach someone the proper way to approach a loss Lose. and have the right <laughs> attitude, right? Like, yeah, it's really hard. So it's like, I think that you, we all feel that way initially when, you know, coming to the game, especially as the stakes get higher, you know, you've spent money, you've flown out somewhere, maybe there's coverage on you and then you lose. It feels it, like the stakes get higher and it does feel worse, but you need to kind of nip it in the butt quickly, learn how to lose, learn how to embrace it and understand what your actual goal is. Was your goal to go win, you know, this, this one calling up in Indi- Indianapolis this one time and never play again? If so, then yeah, it might suck if you lose. But if that's not your goal and your goal is to keep playing the game and win in the future, then you need to realize that that loss is not the end of the world, right? It's a resource for you to learn from and get better. Yeah, so I don't have too much to say on this. I completely agree. It's an attitude thing. Uh, losing is all part of this game. You, it's 
you can't have a 80 90 win record in this game it's just not gonna it's just not gonna happen um there's variance in this game um and you know unless you're like the elite of the elite even in a game with low variance that's not going to happen anyway but the main thing I want to say, apart from attitude, is there's this thing that is really, like, more than any game I've ever played before, it permeates a lot in Flesh and Blood, and I think that's because of how variance manifests in games, is people just blaming variance. <laughs> like, it happens a lot, I think, when you look at uh, Bravo in the current format, people being like, oh, like, got casinoed out or whatever, and it's like, no, like, that was statistically not that unlikely, you know? And people, rather than trying to learn from the loss, just saying, oh, I, you know, I just got so unlucky or my opponent had the nuts. Like, yeah, sure. Every now and again, your opponent is going to have the nuts. But how do you deal with it? Like before you've even, I feel like dealing with loss is one thing, but also the other aspect of this and not tilting is people are tilting in game before the game's even over. Mm-hmm. Like I've seen people just give up on games that I've thought are perfectly winnable. Even if it's like a 10, 15% chance, they can still win that game. But people just give up on it. And um play to your outs, right? Yeah, like play to your outs. And I think it's it's it is really hard. And I you know, like mechanical play is one thing that I really struggle with. This this idea of like understanding variance and and how losses come and, and not tilting. I think I'm that's one thing I think I'm good at. That's something I have practiced and I've you know, been better at that, I think. Um, except when it comes to losing to Brennan, it tilts me off the face of the earth. No I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, like it is, it just you can only play what's in front of you. And you know what? If your opponent does get a little bit lucky. So what you're going to get some luck back the other way later down the track it's not you know it's not uh all one-way traffic so it's just about doing what you can in the moment sometimes your opponent gets really lucky and you still win the game because you play really well and uh, you can get yourself back into a position where you can get some luck down the road that you know you get the better into the variance down the road they get these perfect hands to start with and then you know what you get through it and then they start to draw all reds or whatever they start yeah. to brick on hands and you're drawing good now and you get back into the game and that's that's an ebb and flow of a game of flesh and blood never going to change and um i'm probably sounding a bit harsh right now but just got to get used to it and uh you know what i'm sick of people complaining <laughs> and on top of that hayden one of the things that i hate to see the most players use variance as an excuse to not analyze their game right um this sort of you know kind of cop out of i got high rolled even if you did get high rolled if you got high rolled okay you got high rolled but using it as an excuse to not actually look back on any of the turns, any of the plays throughout that game, I think it's a massive disservice, and you lose out on a lot of potential um, to improve. Because there are a lot, of, there are games where maybe, based off the way your opponent drew and the way they played, you had a zero percent chance to win. But you can still go back and analyze, you know, some of the micro decisions you made. And I think it's just important to ask, you the, ask yourself the questions, like regardless of getting high rolled, did you play perfect, right? And analyze that, break it down. Yeah, I remember um, Brendan, uh, you and actually Dan, who we tested as well, getting a little bit annoyed about this. But during testing for like I guess Tales of Aria season, like we'd play a game and we'd talk about the matchup. But I was more focused on my mistakes, and I'd be like, "Oh, I like this, this, and this." And then you're like, "Yeah, but don't worry about that. What about the matchup? What about the matchup?" <laughs> like, no, but like I could have done this, and I felt like I played a little bit badly there, and like, <laughs> like it is. It's, it's. I think it's really important to look at those things because like I've had opponents say to me before, be like, "Oh, like I got a little bit lucky." And I'm like, yeah, maybe you did get a little bit lucky, but also I think I misplayed on this turn and this turn. And I could have played a little bit differently to maybe keep myself in the game and I didn't. And then I lost to you and you played well and maybe you did get a little bit of luck, but it doesn't matter. That's the game. I now need to reflect on what I did wrong, not anything else. Yeah. I love how this, uh, the I think the ultimate manifestation of losing and not from tilting is actually kind of like a whole different idea, which is something we talk about a lot, which is playing to your outs. Mm-hmm. Sometimes playing to your outs is like, not only does my opponent have to draw the worst possible hand, but they also have to like have a brain fart. 
And you play for those 0.1 percenters and eventually like it's going to happen. And it's just, it's a ridiculous feeling. Um, it was funny because in flesh and blood, you can't really concede like super early and it's not popular. So it doesn't happen a lot, but playing to those outs, no matter how low they are, um, at a high level, I think you should always be doing because I've won many, many games that I should not have won because my opponent was winning by an extreme margin. And then they decided to lose the game, uh, for, you know, <laughs> they were they were they were my best teammate that match. They just lost the game on their own. Yeah, look, um, you can see it in high level play. I mean, I remember watching the, we did an analysis of the Hong Kong regional finals, and it looked like it was pretty sewn up on one side. And then the player who was in, in the lead made a mistake and made I think a couple of mistakes. The player on the other side of it continued to play their best, continued to play as hard as possible and find the lines. And it, they could have given up on that game. It looked like they were basically dead. And the only way they were going to lose their opponent making mistakes, their opponent did. They got a good draw. They took the the door opening. They put the foot in the door and they they took the game from there. So it is honestly, it's a, yeah, anyway, talk more about than I would wanted to, but yeah, it is an important thing, both uh, in-game and then post-game. All right, and we're going to blitz 0.5 because we talked about it recently and it's been a bit of a longer cast, but that's going to be metagaming. Hmm. Metagaming, going into an event or getting an edge, right? Metagaming is, I think, core, right? It's one of the main things you need to be thinking about especially in a game of flesh and blood where you know data isn't perfect so the data that you do have can be extremely powerful right these trends knowing what to expect what you might be going up against and how like you want to position yourself into that perspective meta and into that event is extremely important again before i pass over to you hayden i want to mention the tales of aria meta because it is the best example of this ever happening old him by the time of australia and new zealand nationals was established as a pretty good deck into um into briar right and briar was the terror of tales of aria and we get into the the later part of that format and both new zealand and particularly australia nationals are won by decks that are not briar but also in that top eight are a lot of decks that prey not only play on briar but play on the decks that prey on briar so in australia the deck that won was prism prism was briar was one yeah, sorry, in New Zealand. <laughs> so, it all gets lost when I go when I go uh, go in the southern hemisphere. But yeah, I mean Prism wins. Prism's I Prism's worst matchup in that entire meta might have actually been Briar, right? But that player recognized the meta game, preyed on the decks that were there to beat Briar, like the Guardians, and ended up winning the entire tournament. It is the best example of metagaming that we have ever seen in this game. And um, you know, it's incredible how we went down all these like you know these dreams within a dreams layer within a layer decks that beat the decks right rock paper scissors and then he plays you know foot or something and prism ends up winning uh, New Zealand nationals so something to keep in mind it's always relevant no matter what event you're going to yeah uh, I would say go check out our podcast from two weeks ago on metagaming and deck selection we we do about twenty five minutes on this the only thing I want to add because we didn't talk a lot about it is metagaming is really important in choosing the deck that you will play or the hero you'll play into an event but also what's really important with metagaming is uh, understanding how you if you want to win an event uh, understanding how other people will metagame so how can i potentially stay one step ahead while not diluting my chances to win against the rest of the field so prism good example right okay, how do i beat ultim and then for nick probably the question was like okay like there's still going to be briar showing up like what's my opportunity there well for nick's decision i think it was i get to do draft as well right i have six other rounds that aren't constructed that i can make that up if i have to play a briar or two in swiss you're not going to get that with like a, a single format event so that's something to keep in mind but also the last thing i want to say is within that how do you metagame with the hero or deck choice that you're playing so a really good example of this is like the current prism list right 
if you're thinking about the mirror or you're thinking about what that list does, where's the iteration? What's the move on from there? Like, what are the cards? And I know, Brennan, you're probably going to be playing a couple of cards on your list this weekend that are uh, thinking about how you would metagame uh, the, the list you're playing. Tweak it. So it's not just the deck choice you're making now, it's the list you're, you're choosing and the cards you're choosing. And that's kind of the yeah. only thing I have to add is it's really important to think about metagaming from a macro, but also a micro perspective, especially when you head into a format that's starting to establish and develop itself. Absolutely. And with that, I think that concludes, or let me re-say that, right? I think that you all have had the, the, the pleasure of witnessing um, the Masterclass, Arsenal Pass Masterclass <laughs> on the five, <laughs> the five, um, sorry, I forgot the title real quick. Five habits. Of highly effective players coming to a bookstore in New Year soon. We'll be signing. Find us there. But great podcast. I... I'm super excited for anybody going into Indianapolis this week. Best of luck. It's a great meta. Who knows? We're going to see a dark horse. We're going to crack it wide open. Am I going to be on Kano? Nobody knows. But anyway, Hayden, before I let you do all the shilling. Don't forget it. Something about uh, some people may have a little bit of trouble finding the Google reviews, apparently. Right? We couldn't get one. I thought it was a totally failed experiment. Well, yeah, Google reviews really aren't a thing anymore, apparently, for podcasts. And we were using kind of the... But... We have something for you. Oh, do we have something for you? We've gone and signed up for something called Rate This Podcast. So we have our own URL. And if you go there, you can give us a review and rate us on every podcast platform or anyone you want. It makes it super easy. It's literally a joke. So next week, we'll be reading out the, you know, the best review we get, the funniest one. Ideally, it's uh, above, <laughs> above, uh, above four stars. But, you know, we'll see. So where you're going to need to go, and Hayden will put it in the description notes to be able to write those reviews, you go to HTTPS, no slash slash, you know, you know how it goes, ratethispodcast.com slash Arsenal Pass, no spaces. Forward That's slash again. Arsenal Pass. Forward slash Arsenal Pass. Again, ratethispodcast.com forward slash Arsenal Pass. That's where you go for reviews. Everything is in one place, mobile and desktop. It's the greatest invention I've ever seen. <laughs> All right, Hayden, shill me out. Uh, love it. All right. Well, yeah, as Brennan says, best of luck to everyone going to Indianapolis this weekend. If you are, and you're going to be checking out the coverage, uh, enjoy. I'm really looking forward to it. If you are one of our patrons on the Discord, jump in the Discord during coverage. I'm definitely going to be in there. going to be wanting to chat with people. Um, looking forward to hopefully seeing Brennan on camera round one. We'll see how we go. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, gonna, there's some big names there. And I'm really, I feel like the story of, of the player base is really starting to develop as well. So there's a lot of players I'm looking out for. I'm wanting to see them on camera this weekend. Other than that, yep, follow us on Twitter. If you want to have a, you know, and chat, engage, we post a lot on Twitter about Flesh and Blood uh, when we're doing certain things, updates on things we're working on, when Brendan's streaming, he posts there. So Brendan APG for Brendan and uh, at Fian Dale for me, that's Fian underscore Dale, like the tunic home. Um, big massive thank you to all of our patrons and, uh, you know, thank you for allowing us to continue to do this. And um, yeah, if you are a patron, and you aren't on the Discord, jump in the Discord. You'd have the invite automatically. And if you're not a patron and want to sign up, then check us out at uh, patreon.com slash arsenal pass. Otherwise, enjoy your weekend, and uh, we'll see you 